Transform your bathroom cleaning with Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner. You just spray today and rinse tomorrow for a no-scrub clean. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, this is your once-a-week solution to keeping your tub and shower surfaces sparkling clean. Available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. Join thousands who've switched to an easier clean. Get your wet and forget weekly shower cleaner today and make your bathroom sparkle with zero scrubbing. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance EVs. They're certainly out here, there, but when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. What's happening? <laughs> What's up, Rob? You look like you've either been on lying on the beach or you've been more likely on the golf course. I've been on the golf course. I knew it! Welcome to Literally with Rob Lowe. Um, and, and thank you all for um, the support of the show. It, it's just been going great. And the only reason it's going great is because you're listening. Um, so thank you in advance for the support. Today's a really good one. I'm just going to warn you, it's good. So pull up a chair, pull over to the side of the road. Um, this is a, a, a really unexpectedly different talk with somebody who I've just been a fan of forever because he's a groundbreaker uh, in his field. He's hilarious. And you know I love funny people, if you've been listening to the podcast. Um, but Funny and thoughtful are a really, really rare combination. And you're going to hear stories about this man's life that are just beyond belief. So I'm really happy to share with you my inspiring and funny talk with George Lopez. What's your handicap? What are you playing to these days? I think it's about a good 11. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been playing since 81 and... and uh you know, I used to say, like, I don't play for for the score. I play for the the temperament because I had a really bad temperament growing up. But it helped me kind of rewire myself where I wouldn't, you know, throw things or wouldn't let the, it affect the next shot. And that's a huge part of what I, what I think helped me in business because, uh, you know, we come from a culture where, if two people got in a fight, they might not ever talk again in, the, in their whole life. Mm-hmm. It might, they might be too proud to say, hey, man, you know, I was wrong or, you know, um, can I talk to you for a second? You know, that fight we got into, you know, I don't, 
you know, I don't know if you realize you would hurt me when you said this. None of that happened. Those people would just ignore each other for maybe, maybe the rest of their lives. So I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. And I saw that uh, growing up where people just kind of remove people from their lives. And in golf, it just kind of, it was so difficult for me to get a hold of so foreign a game that I liked it. And all of the traits that I think, you know, either my baseball coach told me was wrong with me or my little league coach told me was wrong with me, um, all kind of came together uh, when I started to play golf. I quit. I cheated. They'd say, where'd you take on that all? Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a six. You had a six. Let me see. And really, when you realize that you're only cheating yourself, you start to realize that the score isn't important. But like the the rules of golf, the integrity, not moving the ball, not, you know, looking to see around if anybody's around rolling it over and stuff like that. And, and, and I had a lot of those those things early on. But we were always trying to get by on people and golf completely, completely eliminated that from my life. That's amazing. I, it's such a great articulation of, I think, why the game is becomes an obsession for people because a lot of people probably right now uh, so listening to this podcast or hitting the forward button. I hate golf. And uh, when are they going to talk about the George Lopez show? That was my favorite show in the world. What are these guys doing? <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to things. But it's, that's such a great articulation of it because that's why we love it. That's exactly why we love it. And but it, then, you know, going to the George Lopez show, when, when, when I heard about other, I mean, you know, I was almost the last comedian to get a shot. And all you really wanted was a shot. You know, everybody says like, you know, whether it's a boxer, whether it's an actor, you know, I just yep. want a shot. You know, yep. guy would say, I never did this. Even they made movies. I never fought. I could have been a contender. <laughs> but I, I saw guys go in the machine and out of the machine in a span of like two months and then never get back to that level again. You know, I played golf with a friend of mine who was so naive that when things started to happen for him, he wasn't prepared for either the change that show business brings, the almost like deceit of people who are kind of working behind you to maybe they might say, hey, maybe this guy's not as good an actor as we thought he might be. You know, sometimes comedians can't act. Who's going to tell him it's going to get... And he just kind of got in and got spit out and never got back to that, to that level. So by the time that I got to have an opportunity because of, I think because of golf, I wanted to fight everybody. And then I had a producer that said, Hey man, listen, man, you know, you need to, you know, relax. And then if there's an issue, I'll tell you if you should get upset or I'll tell you not to worry about something. And instead of, uh, you know, it driving me crazy. I kept like a, a very calm uh, demeanor and I just did my work and I didn't feel like everybody was out to get me. And I didn't feel like we ever had a problem that could be resolved. And I never felt like um, I was either lucky to be there or I didn't think like I didn't deserve it. I'd done my, I'd done my work just like somebody preparing for anything. And I think golf, you hit balls and you go, and you keep going by yourself. And, you know, I rode all the time at home and I went to the clubs all the time. I didn't hang around the club like a lot of guys did. I thought that kind of diminished your, your um, impact if a guy went and did his set, but then hung around three hours or waited for people to walk out and say, hey, man, you were great. 
I was in and I was out. And I think all of those things prepared me for something that I never even thought I would have an opportunity to do. So when I did it, it I wasn't overwhelmed by it. When you were, um, so when you were coming up in that era, and as you said, people, people got their shot. Like, what would, the first shot would be what? You're going on Carson. Would that be like the first, like, walk me through how you end up going, getting to the point where they go, hey, man, we want to build a show around So you. first of all. That's the shot of shots. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny Carson was around all of those years. As a matter of fact, growing up, you know, being an only child, you would see either, I mean, like, names like you'd see bill cosby there but reynolds was a great storyteller there oh yeah uh, are you kidding yeah oh he was like even the they would best. come back from commercial he would come back from commercial and everybody would be laughing and johnny carson would say burt reynolds is telling some off-color jokes to the audience but it was kind of legendary oh yeah and, oh man so so you see all of those things and without you know i mean social media and all those other distractions that that's what everybody was watching so to see all of that, to see the star, to see Johnny Carson, to to know that for a comedian that was you know the high the high mark. Uh, Eddie Murphy did it, Leno Letterman, Jimmy Walker, uh, all of the guys. Drew Carey was the, Drew Carey did it. Drew Carey was living in his car. He got a chance to do the Tonight Show. He was incredible and so you know so innocent and funny and unassuming and he couldn't believe it. So after he's done, he's standing there and Johnny Carson is waving him over, which is like the, the best thing that can ever happen. And Drew's like me. And he's like, come over. And he was just so sweet that the next day he was, a, he was a huge star. Literally in those days, because in those days TV was such the ratings were such and the people who are watching that it literally overnight, you were a star legitimately overnight. Star. overnight. Yeah, so he had a deal. He started to do a show, started to work at, uh, you know, Warner Brothers on a show. He sold it to ABC, and all of a sudden, you know, you're so proud of this guy, and you're like, man, that guy's like one of us. But mm -hmm. um, not all of us get that opportunity. So I remember that I was working at the Maxim Hotel in the Playboy Girls of Rock and Roll in 1988. And it that, was that sounds like the best job. That sounds like what you worked <laughs> your whole life for. You said to me, like, I would go on Carson hoping I get that job. I mean, that's, that's right. Well. <laughs> so there's nudity. Then there's well, yes! for seven minutes. And then there's more nudity. And then there's another comedian. Then everybody who was nude comes back on stage for one last number. And the show is over. <laughs> it's amazing. That's to me, that would have been the shot. I would have been like, I've made it. I don't need to do anything more. <laughs> So, so, so in that, so in that, I remember, uh, I was looking at the, the life section of USA Today and Johnny Carson had announced his retirement and it said that there would be six, six more people that would be on the show between, uh, July of, uh, 90 and, and May of, of 91 when he was going to retire. Yep. I remember. Yeah. Big, so all big, of a sudden it, it, it becomes like Willy Wonka, you know, there's six tickets six new guys and I'm not thinking I'm in a hotel in Las Vegas and I'm not thinking I'm going to be that guy because I was kind of what, what I never wanted to be was a guy who only could make money on the road. So as I read that, I thought, wow, man, that's, you know, it's amazing. It's like Willy Wonka. So somehow I get back in LA and uh, Jerry Seinfeld's manager, Shapiro West, 
uh, George uh, uh, Shapiro and, and Howard West. Seinfeld was on. And they saw me, and they were kind of interested in me. And then the guy, Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show, was there. And then I was, as I was showcasing, McCauley says to, uh, you know, George, are you representing this kid? And he's like, yeah, we're thinking about it. Well, if you do, tell him, you know, I think it's interesting. He should prepare some stuff and, and um, you know, give us a call. So when I got off, they said, hey, we got you The Tonight Show. They, did, they were just standing next to the guy from The Tonight Show. But then I spent a week working on... By the way, can, let me uh, just pause you right there. For people who are not in show business, you just heard great show business distilled down to the perfect story. The guy from The Tonight Show says he should prepare something. We'll be interested. The people in showbiz tell George he's got The Tonight Show. Right. And they had That's nothing to do with it. All they were doing was standing next to the guy from The Tonight Show. That is, that's show business in a nutshell. Continue. This story is amazing. So I go, so I prepare for a week, 10 day, 10 hours a day. I'd fall asleep with the notes on my chest. I'd wake up, I'd keep writing. So I go to Macaulay's office and it's there on Burbank, right across the street from Derweiner Schnitzel in Burbank. Where studio. all the great art happens. Yes, of all course. The, right near Derweiner Schnitzel. Yes. Johnny, right. Johnny Carson did that. So I literally go to the guy's office and it's like me and you right now and he's standing behind the desk and he goes okay let's see what you got and i'm by myself and i just start talking with this material that i presented and he's done he doesn't laugh he's just sitting there and at the end he goes okay um the beginning i don't like the beginning but move the middle to the front and then move the ending story to the middle and then find an ending and um you know do it for a week and come back. So I went back to this place on Barham that I was living, worked on it again. And by chance, I was at the improv like a week later and he walks in and walks over to me and he says, Hey, are you going to do any of the stuff that I'd asked you to do? And I said, yeah, I, I can do it. You know, I'll do it. So it's one of those, you know, night rub that, that the audience is a little bit higher. They're a little bit more energetic. I go up there. And, uh, you know, I catch it, you know, I catch seven minutes of it. And when I walk off, he follows me into the, um, hallway, he sticks out his hand. He goes, Hey man, congratulations. You know, you got the tonight show. I was like, wow. wow. Holy I got the crap. Tonight show. So then I get bumped by Bill Cosby. It's, 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 it's November of 91. I get bumped by Bill Cosby. And usually, you know, I, I they said, Hey man, you got bumped. And then. And by the way, what of- that, that means for the showbiz people is like, you would go there. But if you were not maybe quite at a particular level of fame, there was always that chance that the show ran long, you weren't going to be on it. You're bumped. Mm-hmm. So when, when big dog Bill Cosby comes on and you're just brand new George Lopez, you know, you're, so now, you're in danger. Yeah. So now every comedian said, man, I got bumped and I never got on. And then, you know, I was going to go on and I got bumped and I never got on. So I was like, man, it's not going to happen. So two days later. They call me again. They go, hey, you got next week. So it's my, it's, it's uh, Bob Newhart, myself, and uh, Lisa Stansfield, who had that song, Been Around the World, Been Around the yeah, World. Yeah, hell yeah. Ay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, so it's us three. I go over there. I do The Tonight Show with Bob Newhart, and, uh, who's, you know, 90 at that time. <laughs> and uh, I mean, <laughs> so you're just like, wow. And, and Lisa was hot. I was out, Johnny was, uh, and I did it, man. And, and Johnny, you know, at that time, I think he, he was getting death threats. 
So he was being followed by the Burbank police. So in the hallway after the show, two who Burbank Wait, police- who wants to kill Johnny Carson uh, other than Jay Leno? I mean, we, obviously we know <laughs> we know Jay that. tried to kill him for years. We, we know that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. So, so, <laughs> so two Burbank police cover all the corner. And then here comes this little man in these, in these Zachary all suits, you know, polyester. I mean, clearly polyester with the pockets, with the flaps over the pockets. And it's Johnny, and they say, clear the hall. But then I go stand in, my, in the doorway because I was just on the show, so I'm like, I'm in the doorway. So the two cops come by. Here comes Johnny Carson. He's tiny. He's older. And then two other police behind him. And he stops at my, uh, at my doorway there, and he extends his hand. He says, that young man did a nice job. Uh, Jim was telling me about you. It's nice to have you on the show. And, you know, maybe you can come back on before I leave again. Uh, but I enjoyed having you on. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it, you know? Wow. <laughs> That's. And he had these liver spots, Rob. You know, I looked at his hand. He had these liver spots on his hand. I mean, I mean, imagine looking at Johnny Carson, like as close as you and I, you know, just like a, a foot and a half away. He had these liver spots on his forehead and he had the little comb over. And, uh, and I was just like, I'm taking in every line and every liver spot on Johnny Carson's face. Cause you know, that's the only other time I saw him, but. You know, it's kind of a uh, an amazing uh, and it, and it's a good lesson for for other celebrities who may be listening to the podcast. Like when you meet your fans, they're looking at your liver spots. Let's <laughs> let's just do you know what I mean? They may be telling you they love the West Wing or the George Lopez show. What they're really doing is counting the liver spots, and that's well. That's you know, the, you've always been a very attractive person. So I I go to Houston and I land in Houston, and the, the driver says. As we're at the red light, the driver says, this, this place across the street has the most incredible barbecue. My show's on. We're doing a concert in Houston. I go, let's go in there. I go in there. As I get to the cash register, the woman says to me, hey, uh, you're on TV. I say, yes, I am. And she looks at me and she goes, wow, you look, you look different. You should stay on TV. That's what she says. <laughs> <laughs> you should stay on TV. You should stay on TV. Oh, my God. I said, wow, man. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day? Or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky same day. Or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer. California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. Look, I love California. Um, And I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history. 
and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash rob. That's harrys.com slash rob for a $3 trial set. The weather is getting warmer. It's time to ditch the jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. But there's no need to waste money on clothes that only last one season with Quince. Now you can get high quality pieces that never go out of style. You'll be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts for $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering with the top factories, Quince cuts out the middleman and passes the savings directly onto you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. My producer recently made an order for Quince, and here's what he had to say. I'm really excited to revamp my closet with Quince. I cannot wait for my items to arrive from Quince. You know, I'm a sweater guy. I was looking at that burgundy cashmere crew neck. I love the blue chore jacket. Maybe I'll throw some joggers in there. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash rob for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Rob to get free shipping and 360-day returns. Quince.com slash Rob. There's so much of that stuff that, I mean, I think you're great at what you do, but there's so much of that stuff that you live with every day and, uh, it's things you can't believe that it, there's not many things that can't believe you can't believe happen in your career, but there's things you can't believe that people would say to somebody, uh, never having ever seen them before. Oh, for sure. I, uh, my friend David Crosby has a philosophy on that. And, uh, you know, David, David feels like, you know, and David's been an icon, a musical icon since right. 1960, what, 65, so whatever. Right. And still is, you know, and, and he has a philosophy and he also looks very specific. I mean, like there's no, like, you know, when you've seen David Crosby. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, his thing is that he feels like when he shows up in people, in, in people's lives, that, that it short circuits their, the, the, I believe it yeah. actually short circuits their reality because I've existed in a two dimensional form, either on, either with the music or a photo or an interview, it's two dimensional. And now I'm three dimensional and I'm in front of somebody and they're literally their reality is so challenged that they will say anything. And right. I, I'd like to, I, it'd be great to do a book of, uh, of quotes of, of like that, of you should stay on television. By the way, maybe you and I should just do that book. I, it's a great title. You should I think stay on know television. a lot of the same people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, because of, um, you know, I spent a lot of time alone. I grew up in San Fernando, Mission Hills. My, my, I didn't know my biological father. Uh, my mother was not 
healthy. And uh, my grandfather wasn't biological. My grandmother was. My grandmother was kind of tough on me, but they worked all the time. And it's almost like, you know, there's no reason why a kid who spent so much time alone would ever succeed at anything. I mean, I don't think anybody expected anything from me. But in watching TV and in watching those, those things and in not having uh, either family or not having a male figure, you know, when I started to play golf on a dare, those clubs and my temperament and the cheating and the leaving and the quitting almost became a surrogate family. And, you know, if I hadn't have played golf, if I hadn't of, uh, you know, learned those hard lessons, I'm not sure that I would be where I, where I am. You know, I always felt different from the guys that I grew up with. Not better. I just felt different. And, and you know, I've told a story that the, a baseball coach, um, gave, you know, he bought some equipment at San Fernando High, and, and he gave us these booklets of car wash tickets to sell. But I didn't sell any because I wasn't a salesman. I was getting introverted. And, and then he says, you owe me, you, owe me uh, um, you know, $300. I go, for what? For the tickets. I said, I didn't sell any. He goes, well, you know, you're responsible because, you know, this equipment's not going to pay for itself. So he and I got into a big fight and he was the first guy really to get into my face and say that I was a quitter and that I, I, I wasn't connected to anything or devoted to anything. And when something got tough, that I was going to pack it in. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, at El Carrizo in Silmar that I quit uh, when I was playing golf. I, I was leaving. These guys go, where are you going? Oh, I'm, I'm leaving, man. I got something to do. I was, you know, just frustrated that that guy's voice rang in my head. And it's one of those things that it just brings in your head. I heard it. And, uh, you know, I went to the school maybe four years after I graduated and waited for all the players to leave and walked up to them and apologized to them and said, hey, man, I'm sorry the way I treated you when I was here. Um, you know, you were right. And he's like, that's what you came to tell me. And I had never, ever, ever apologized. I mean, I opened with, talked about yeah. removing people from your life. And I had never apologized to a man for the way that I behaved. And uh, I don't think that I could have gone a day knowing that he taught me those lessons and not going back and thanking him for teaching me those lessons. It's, um, you, it's funny hearing you talk. You're, you've done so much work on yourself and it seems to me like you've done it in a, in a way that's really, really, really interesting. Like as you're, as you were coming up, my guess is you didn't have the time or the money to do proper therapy. So you took no. the mentorship where you could find it is what I'm kind of getting. Right. And it's almost like, you know, the unfortunate part now is, you know, I'm 59 and you think that, you know, when you're growing up and then, I was still doing high stand-up in high school. I started right before we graduated. And then in your 20s, you're doing these clubs and you're gone. I started to travel on the road. And then I got uh, married in my early 30s. And even that was a little bit of a double life thing. Um, and then when I started to do my show in the 2000s, again, it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's, it's another part of your life. You're locked away. So the relationship part of of my life at 59 has never has never developed or the connection to somebody because totally. everything everything that I chose to do 
I could do by myself. I could go on the road by myself. I could golf by myself. And then when I started to get involved in relationships, since I didn't see healthy relationships, I couldn't connect to somebody because I just didn't know how those tools, I, I never had those tools. One, I relate so much, you know, and, and, and then there's the other element to it that people will say that at whatever age you are, when you become famous, if you become famous, you're frozen in time at that age. Yeah. Like, and which would make me a permanent 18 year old. <laughs> That's not good in a 57 year old's body. No, no. Right. Not. And, and it's true what we, and the reason you're, you're such an inspiration and, and a survivor is that you have this kind of insight. And I'm just frankly blown away that, that you've, that you've done it with, with this sort of ad hoc put together right. with your own thinking and the people that have come across your, your transom, whether it's the, the baseball coach or, or, or what you've learned from golf you've synthesized it in such an amazing way from like, you know, I, I've, I, I've been lucky that I've had really good gurus that I've had the access and the knowledge to seek out, you know, in my, right. in my journey, you know, which is very different and yet also very similar. Um, never felt, I always felt different than my, than when I was a little kid, mm -hmm. always. And, and it was shy, which people were like, wait, you're an actor, you're a comedian. What do you mean you're shy, George Lopez? You're right. hilarious. It's like, no, right. no, I'm shy, right? Yeah. And, you know, and same, same. And even, with, feel, and even feeling different doesn't mean you felt better. Like all the guys, I'm still friends with, the, with all the guys I went to high school with, and I didn't feel better than them. And even though they had fathers and they had mothers and, you know, their parents would come and, uh, uh, you know, watch them play baseball. I love baseball. And I mean, my grandmother raised me. My grandmother was was tough. And you know, one of the one of the saddest, you know, one of the saddest, funniest things is, you know, so when you have twelve games in little league, and there's you know twelve players or fourteen players every week, one of the players' mothers is responsible for being the the snack mom. And after practice, they either bring juice yes. or chips. Oh, I remember. Or something for, for the team. Oh, yeah. And my grandma, I played baseball all those years and my grandmother never did. And I would be like, hey, grandma, you know, in two weeks, you're the snack. What's that that you have to bring? Why, why would I go to the store and get things to, for you to take for your friends? Because that's what everybody does. Oh, that's, what, that's what everybody's at. That's why I got to do it. So it, 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 it embarrassed me to be the only kid sure. that, yeah. that, that would leave the kids hanging and they'd go for all, for all of those years. And she never thought twice about it, but it embarrassed, it embarrassed me all those years, you know? That's, oh, I, I totally 100% get it. And it's, it's funny how those things are huge. And yet as a kid, you go, well, I mean, you know, my grandmother, cause it's a different generation. And, and you like, you, you try to, so you can survive it. Yeah. You try to justify it, right? Yeah. And then, but as you, when you become an adult and you try to grow and you try to figure out why you are the way you are, you look back on it and go, no, that's really fucking radical. Right. 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 So when you see kids now and there's so much and, you know, there's therapy and then there's trauma therapy and then there's, you know, kids that don't go outside or whatever. Like, I, I, you know, you could sound like you're a thousand years old, but 
the unfortunate thing for these kids is that I don't think that there's whatever ignited in me the 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 spark of wanting to do stand up at eleven, starting to write jokes on you know old gas envelopes or anything I could find, and then never telling anybody my dreams, and then uh, June fourth of seventy nine, I graduated the eleventh of June in seventy nine going to the comedy store in Westwood, uh, uh, a kid that was afraid that couldn't, you know, hand out papers in class because I just felt like everybody was looking at me to go do something that I wasn't good at for years and years and years. And to continue to go back to me of all the things that I've done, the thing that I cannot explain is why somebody would go back all those years and be bad, and be bad, and be bad. And then the third time I was good, by accident, and it would rob, it was like the first time ever feeling this love, this applause, this thing I was standing on the stage. And it was almost like if it, if it gave you um, new blood, like the blood that you had, nobody believed in. Now you have this new blood where you, where you felt like it could be a possibility. And, and, you know, I didn't know I was going to do that good. I didn't expect to be put up earlier than, than I was, but it just happened. And I think, you know, even having a daughter that's 24 that said to me, you know, uh, I, I thought I would be further ahead. And I said, further ahead of what? Like, of what? Of, <laughs> of what I want to do. But she hadn't focused on what she wants to do. But the idea that somebody would say, I thought it'd be further ahead, again, I think, for kids, you don't need, you know, all of these things to be inspired. You, you have to find it within yourself. Well, it's it. That's also a connection that we both have. Is you started writing? You have no idea why you started writing jokes at at, at eleven. Did you say? Mm-hmm. People don't do that. No, they don't. They don't do that. So it's like, why did I in Dayton, Ohio, not exactly a hotbed of show business? Decided at eight years old, I was going to be an actor. Right. No idea. No idea. And how did that happen? Was that in school or was that? No, I, I, my parents took me to a community theater, the Dayton Community Theater. It's still there. It's in a different building, but it's still there. And it was, I guess they had a friend who was in the play and it was Oliver. And there's little kids in it. The little, whatever, ragamuffins or whatever the hell they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, like struck by lightning. It was like a bad moment in a movie where I was like that that right there and we were walking out of the lobby and there was a little like a poster for summer uh, acting workshop for kids and I asked my parents I read it and was like I want to do that will you sign me up and they were like yeah sure but you know in their mind I'm sure it was like if it wasn't that it'd be you know summer camp or something else but right. for me it was like this is the beginning of where I'm going to go. And I knew it in my bones, in my DNA, and no one could right. tell me otherwise. And it makes no sense. It, an eight-year-old should not know that, care about that. And it was, both, you know, a blessing, but it's also a curse in a weird way because now I have kids like you. What made me think of this is your 24-year-old. And you and I had the blessing curse of knowing what we wanted to do. Right. These kids don't know. And by the way, most people don't know. You know, they they think about, 
they kind of have an interest in this area of life and maybe they'll try that as a job and they don't, but to have, it's hard for, it was hard for me as a father to, to offer advice when I knew what I wanted to do. And, you know, the kids are exploring. I I just don't have any experience with that. Did you ever, did you ever have that? No, I mean, you know, the gap year is an incredible thing to me. The, yeah. the fact that somebody would get out of school and say, you know, I'm going to take a gap year of, of doing this, you know. And, and um, you know, when you tell your kids that, it's like, you know, just leave me alone, you know, I'll figure it out. But time goes by so fast that, you know, you're wasting something that is so valuable when I don't think they're devoting their true attention to it. Either you feel it or not. Like you saw that. When you were eight, yeah. when I was 11, you know, and, and, and when that, you know, when the coach told me that I was a quitter and in 1984, you know, I'd lost my job and I woke up and I was sleeping on my man's, uh, you know, in a duplex on his couch and it was a Monday and I was kind of on and off of stand up, doing a little bit. I remember it was Ali was fighting and Ali would, would fight and then come back. He wasn't sure he was going <laughs> to fight. And then I thought, you know, Ali, you know, so I thought, uh, as a, as a quitter and as a guy who, um, getting that information from that coach that morning at six fifteen in the morning on a duplex in Pacoima and I didn't have a job and, and I just woke up and, and I said, well, you know, what the fuck am I going to do for my life? You know, am I going to get another job? And I had done stand up, and I thought, well, what would I do for free? And I thought, you know, I'd do stand up. So that night, that day I prepared whatever material was left over from, you know, the six months before, the year before. And I said to myself that morning, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do stand up, and I'm not going to quit. And I don't care what happens, but I'm not quitting. And that was the first time I did that. And when I went back, guys made fun of me like, Hey, look who's here. You know, he didn't see me in a year. I'd seen me in six months. And I just kept going and I kept going and I kept going and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I just kept going and I never thought of success, but I never thought of, I, I never thought of success, but more importantly, I never thought of quitting. Well, you know, what's amazing, George, is like, it's one thing to give a bad performance or not, or as you were saying, uh, not do, do well on a TV show or whatever, because nobody's, you don't really know. You might read the reviews, but there's no live audience. But to be a comedian and, and to not do well, that's got to be painful. Is that, and when you say not oh. do well, you're talking about you tell a joke and it's silent. Okay, eating it, just eating it. You eat it for years, you know. There used to be a place called the Natural Fudge in Hollywood, and and it was like the first. It was just in a rundown area over there, at this kind of um, behind KTTV, that old back over oh. there, Van Ness. Yes. It's, it's called the Natural Fudge, and it was just this little building. It was a Sprouts, and I'm looked at this. They made they made you buy food if you were going to perform. Oh God! And uh, Jesus, I may have done the worst. One of, I've done worse since then, but maybe the worst ever. And I got in my car and I was driving down the 170 uh, right by, you know, uh, Roscoe. And I started to cry. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm driving, I'm crying. I'm like, you know what, man? Fuck this, man. I don't need this shit. It didn't come easy. I'm like, I don't need this bullshit. And I remember just, you know, wiping my eyes and getting closer to my off ramp and getting off and, you know, Waking up in the morning and saying, "No, I'm I'm going back." I mean, but that night, that, that for that seven miles was maybe one of the most difficult 
personal behind the wheel, just frustrated. I don't need this shit. I'm quitting. Fuck it. I'm no good. And, and in the morning, you know, I was, I wasn't better. I wasn't funnier in the morning, but I just, I just got up and I did it again, man. You you know what I love about having this talk with you is I would never, ever have suspected that this was your journey ever. And, and, you know, and it's like, it's that old thing of like, we look at other people and I'm like, you're fucking George Lopez, dude. You're a legend. You're, you're a trailblazer. (laughs) You're a legend. You're hilarious. You, you know, you were, you've, you've been on the scene forever and, and, and you, I would look back, I would just assume and do the math in my head, knowing nothing that, you know, sure it was what it was, but you don't, like people don't realize what other people's journeys are. And it doesn't matter if you're, right. you know, like George Lopez or me or whoever, people listening, it's like, we, it's just a great reminder that we don't know the suffering or the journeys that people have been on. And a lot of times we assume that people have had it easy because they've been uh, successful and you just don't, you, you just don't know, man. I would never have known that this is your story. It's really, 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 really inspiring and, and good to hear. So what I tell people is, um, and I'm not an advice giver, but if I see somebody that say, man, if you ever wanted to do something, do it. It's never too late to do it. You know, um, don't tell anybody your dreams. Don't tell anybody what you want to do. Just inspire yourself. Like if you can't inspire yourself, you know, looking for somebody uh, to inspire you or looking for somebody for advice. You know, my wife, my ex-wife, God bless her. So, you know, in, in 2005, you know, the Emmys were kind of not doing very well. And then they decide, I think in 2005, that they were going to have like different comedians be hosts, you know, uh, guest hosts. So I think it was myself, Brad Garrett, Ray Romano, Conan O'Brien, Bernie Mac, um, maybe Sarah Silverman. And we all, all presented, Shanling, all presented things at different times. So that was on a Sunday, and I went to um, uh, rehearsal that Saturday. I was preparing my stuff, and my wife found my notes, you know, and she's looking at my notes, and she looks at me, and she says, you're not going to do this shit, are you? Uh, this is the shit you're going to do? No! And I said, I said, I said yeah, that's the shit I'm going to do. She goes, first of all, it's not funny, and it's racist. And I said... <laughs> It's not funny. It's racist. I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you let me worry about it? Why don't you, you know, so we get in a fight that morning. I go to rehearsal. I do it. And and it's not even in the back of my head. Like, you know, I'm not going to let her destroy, you know, what I'm, that's me. Like I'm working on me. That's why in the beginning I said, I'd never let anybody, um, you know, look at my stuff or ask somebody. So, so I do it. And she has this face like, you know, I think you're making a big mistake. And I'm just like, you know what? If it is, it's my mistake. Right. So sure. the, yep. the, the Sopranos are there, uh, Six Feet Under, um, uh, Everybody Loves Rain. It's, it's, it's a great time in TV. Yes. Yes, so it was. So we're sitting next to each other, and they come and get you, the escort come and gets you. And I stand up, and she stands up, and I said, uh, um, you know what? You stay here. And she goes, what? I'm going with you. I said, you stay here. I said, to her, you burned your backstage pass yesterday. So do me a favor <laughs> and stay here, right? So I go out there and I presented the first Emmy 
for reality TV. That's uh, all your fault. God damn it. It was the first, that is my fault. So they gave, me the, they gave me the first Emmy. So I said, I went out there and said, you know, survivor, people on an island. I said, you know, let's let them go to East LA and see how long they last. You know, would they last a season? And then they had, they had, I had a joke about uh, Big Brother. And I said, you know, 14 people living in a house. I said, it's been done. <laughs> so everybody, at that point, everybody's fucking rolling. Like the whole place is rolling. And then I said, you know, Extreme Makeover, where they take somebody who's unattractive and in an hour they're beautiful. I said, but isn't that what a 12 pack does? Oh, killer. You know, so, so killer jokes, them. killer, killer, killer. Kill Killed them. So the next day, the LA Times says that I'm like a Latino Will Rogers, and they have that quote. Oh, quote, yes. 14 people in a house. It's been done, it says George Lopez. And the guy that wrote it said, this guy is just like, you know, he gets, he's just cultural. He does this thing. It's in the paper. We go back there. And, uh, and again, like, she didn't believe, didn't think. And, the, and it, it was a success. Everybody did great. And I did great. But I didn't let that person get to me. I didn't let them think. So, you know, my thing was never to show anybody my cards. And mm. I would play my cards myself. You know? Well, it's so smart because the, you know, I've been married forever to my, to my wife. And the one place I know that I cannot trust her is <laughs> comedy. And what I'm going to say publicly. <laughs> and I think, because I, they're, they're scared we're going to bomb. Right. You know, they're scared we're going to not do it because they, they, they love us. But she, I cannot tell you how many times I've had that. You're not going to say that, are you? Right. Thing that you, but that you had the balls to go out and do it. I remember, I was at that Emmys. I remember it now. Um, mm. You crushed it. I remember that joke. I mean, that joke was huge. By the way, it's such a well-constructed 14 people in house. It's been done. Been done. That's yeah. a lot of, of TNT in two sentences. <laughs> and we'll be right back after this. Hey, listeners. Ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. 
Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. But also, you know, I got discovered by, by Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock was really the first person to see me and take an interest and take an interest in me. And uh, I didn't know Sandra Bullock was a talent scout. I need to know more about this. How did this happen? So, you know, so, so her mother passes away in the early 2000s. She's very disillusioned with the business and she had just done Miss Congeniality. She's like the, the biggest star, Sandra mm-hmm. Bullock. And, and yep. somebody asked her, you know, a person that she was working with to come and see me. And she came to see me. And she had an idea for a show that was more centrally about teenagers. And I remember backstage, she said, you know, after seeing you, your, your, your life is like a train wreck. Your comedy is like a train wreck. You can't turn away from. And um, I want I want to, you know, have a meeting with you. I want you to come and talk to me about what your family's like. And I remember I was at Whitsitt hitting golf balls. Uh, <laughs> the meeting was at 2 o'clock at Fortis over there right off of, by the old Tower Records yeah. on Sunset. Yeah. And at one o'clock, I'm hitting golf balls and my manager calls me and he says, are you on your way? And I said, no, man, I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm over here hitting golf balls. What the fuck are you doing? You know, they're waiting for you. I said, I said, I said to him, hey, man, you know, what's she going to do for me? I mean, what, what is she going to do for me? She goes, hey, listen, she wants you to see you. She's already saw you. She's interested in you. I said, but what is she going to do for me? You know, just a defeatist, you know, kind of a defeatist mm. attitude, maybe a little bit of afraid, but also, you know, Really, what was she going to do for me? So he says, go over there. So I remember I left all these golf balls. I told the guy next to me, hey, have these balls. And I went over there. And we talked for maybe, you know, three hours. And we had lunch. And, and she kind of got it. You know, she kind of got the idea of the show around a guy who didn't have a father, who had a mother that was overbearing. And his wife expected him to be a better husband. But his mom still treated him like a boy. That, that, that's what we decided. You know. And I remember the Chicago Bulls were winning all these championships. And, and Phil, too, they won with the triangle. Yeah. So I thought to sure. myself, this show is going to be like a triangle. Like I'm going to be the triangle between my mom and my wife. I'm going to be the triangle before how I raise my kids and how my wife thinks I can raise the kids. And in that triangle, I found some success. So as she was walking me down the stairs and she opens the door, you know, I look at her and I said, listen, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. And, uh, you know, this is something that's never been done successfully on TV. So if I don't ever get a chance to see you again, or if I, you know, I just want to say, you know, thank you for taking an interest in me. You know, and, she, and she looked at me and she said, why don't, why don't you worry about being funny? And why don't you let me worry about all of that? And it really was the first time at 41 that anybody ever really had my back. And it was somebody that wasn't related to me. That's so great. That's really inspiring story. And it does not happen all the time. No, it doesn't happen. And, and, and I remember, uh, I remember, uh, when we were living in, uh, in uh, Sherman Oaks and Drew Carey show had syndicated and it syndicated for like a huge amount. That's when, you know, those guys were making huge amounts Bazillions. of money. Roseanne made, you know, $250 million and, yep. and, and Drew Carey had syndicated for like a hundred million. They made a hundred million each. Yep. And, uh, I, and I, and I remember, you know, she, I went to the kitchen there and this like milk and, and she just opens a paper and she says, you know how much money Drew Carey made uh, last year? And I said, no, she goes, he made $40 million. And, and, uh, I was just, you know, I got up, I got some, I got some golf balls from, 
my uh, uh, garage and I was hitting some golf balls in the dark. And my neighbor across the street, Jan, you know, she, she saw me hitting golf balls. She walks across the street. She goes, what the fuck are you doing? I look at her. I go, you know how much Drew Carey made last year? <laughs> I said, $40 million. And she comes over and she looks at me. And she goes, you know, my man, fuck Drew Carey. Like, you're George Lopez. And I wasn't doing anything. Like, you know, listen, do, do yourself a favor and don't worry about what Drew Carey's doing. Don't worry about what anybody's doing. You're a funny dude. Like, just keep doing your thing, not knowing anything about what was, what was down the line. She was just telling me pretty much, don't worry about anybody else and just be your, be your own person. And uh, uh, the guy that did Drew Carey's show ended up doing my show. Wow. And with Sandra. And uh, it's wild, Rob. I, I never, you know, these things that have all happened, man, that, you know, I remember, I remember seeing the end of Drew Carey's show and it said created by uh, Bruce Elford and Drew Carey. And I would look at my wife and i go, you know, where's my Bruce Elford? Like, wh- when am I going to get a shot? And uh, we were at uh, uh, we were at the uh, in Pasadena at that big hotel. They used to do the T uh, yeah, the Ritz Carlton, the, T- the, the TCAs, the Ritz Carlton. Yep, absolutely. So we're up on this we're up on this floor, and everybody's outside. And Sandra's in one room, and you can see her in a little TV in the hallway. You know, she's in talking about me, and then we go to the next one, and Bruce is in there. And I look at my wife, and he's in this little little TV screen, and I go, "Hey, there's my Bruce Elford right there," and he's in there talking about me and talking about the show. Crazy shit, man. Wow. It's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it is. It, 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 it's crazy. You don't ever imagine. I mean, like I never imagined it. You can't, you can't either control it, but also there's success and there's failure. Like it, it could have not, it could have not worked. And, t- and timing and timing plays a huge part in everybody's lives. No matter what, no matter what they're doing, what, what, whether in show business or not in show business, timing is a big, is a really, really, really big thing. Timing is a big thing, but fear also, you know, fear intimidates people and maybe they may not share with anybody, but, you know, timing can't have its place if fear keeps you from even getting in the game, you know? So I was never, um, I got to that point in the nineties where I just thought since I was afraid of everything growing up and I was afraid of, you know, stand up, I, I really kind of analytically said, like, what am, what am I afraid of? I mean, am I afraid of going up there and nobody laughing? I mean, that kind of happens to everybody. So if that is the, is the worst thing that can happen to me, well, let me just work as hard as I can work to avoid that happening, which I didn't have in the 80s. I created, I kind of found that in the 90s. And once I stopped worrying about what other people were doing and started to just work on myself, it just, everything changed. Who was the who is the funniest person you ever saw? Um, in a club, in a in a in a, in a yeah, in a in a in a club, like like where you saw them and they were just electric, like you just could not believe how they were in that moment. So in 1987 at the Ice House in Pasadena, before um, Dana Carvey was on Saturday Night Live, this guy was the most incredible comedian I ever saw the church lady uh uh the character from uh Wayne's World was in there he did Scarface he did the, the uh, all of the characters that you ever saw in his uh movies were in his act and uh he was only there two nights because he was doing wise guys with Burt Lancaster and Kurt Russell uh, uh Kurt, Kurt um Kurt Douglas yeah Douglas and he and he could only work two days and I remember the second day he came, he got five standing ovations 
five encores the first night. And then I remember when he showed up the second night, I asked him a simple question. I said, hey, man, how, how did you get so funny? Like, how, how does this happen? And he says, you know what, George? It's all attitude, bro. This is like, if you believe it, they'll believe it. And I never walk up there and say, hey, but how about a round of applause for Rob? Wasn't he great? Because I get to the business. Like, I walk up there. I get to the business. I don't ask them how they're doing. I tell them how I'm doing. And I just drive. You know, I'm the driver. And, uh, and for a little guy like that, and you, and you saw him work, it's true. And maybe one of the most valuable lessons that, that, and I took advice. I didn't want somebody to say like, what the fuck does that mean? I took, I took that advice. I took every, every advice that I thought um, was real. And here's a guy that was the funniest person I ever saw. I took that advice. That, that put me on the right path too. By the way, that is such a great piece of advice um, for everybody. Like if you have, like the, the opening gambit of how you doing tonight? I love that that's fucked. Yeah. You tell them how you're doing. It's like, it's yeah. so, it, that's so good. It, it, at, well, and you know, it's funny because um, I agree with you that I think of, of all, and I've been blessed to work with a bunch of funny people from, you know, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Ricky Gervais, Gary Shandling, um, you name it. Uh, I've been really, Mike Myers, Dan, all of them, the murderer, the killer, the assassin, right. it's Dana. Yes. He's just, when you look, see, I did live scenes with him, okay, on Saturday Night Live yep. and in Wayne's World. And when you looked in his eyes, you felt like you were on stage with a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Like, like he would murder you mm-hmm. for a laugh. Yep. And not in a, not, but not in a bad way. Not but he, it's, it's like he, it's like you talk about the eye of the tiger. No one has the comedic eye of the tiger. Like he's a fucking killer. Like his, yeah. his appearances on, on Carson, he used to do a bit where all he did was, you know, the stupid cups of water they put in front of you when you're on a talk yeah. show, those mugs, yeah. which by the way, I think in the old days didn't have water in them, but with my luck, I came up, up late and they just have water in them. But Dana's bit was he would just drink from the fucking cup and go, <laughs> so good. And, and it just destroyed. He he's mm-hmm. he's the best. I wouldn't that's I think that's a that's a great choice. And Did also you? he was a guy that could do an hour and and make it seem the most effortless performance you'd ever seen anybody do. You know, I did a thing with him up in the Bay Area for Tony LaRusso's uh, dog um, rescue thing. And Dana was up there and he did an hour and it was the most effortless hour I've ever seen anyone do like that. That guy was he's just I don't think he gets enough credit as, you know, maybe as the, one of the top comedians. You know, George Carlin does. Pryor does. Uh, CK or DeChapelle. But th- that dude does not get the credit that he deserves. He's incredible. Um, I, I have something I want to ask you. So when I, when I, um, cause you know, I'm very professional at this, George, I'm a, um, I'm a professional podcasting host now. Um, you, you're, and, you're great at it. Well, thank you. And um, it's just because I have a staff that provides me with information and um, you know, what's great is most folks I have on the show, I know and have a relationship with like you and I've run into each other in golf courses at baseball games and, we're acquaintances, but 
every once in a while, the staff will find some shit in the... And I'm like, that's not true. George Lopez was not a witness oh. in the trial of Michael Jackson. Oh. That's not That's not true. Is it true? Uh, yeah. So... Uh, that's a, you know what this is a great question. I, I'm going to tell you so. So, the Laugh Factory did these comedy camps. Jamie Masada at the Laugh Factory did these comedy camps with underprivileged people, with underprivileged kids. Right. So Chris Tucker did it. Jay Leno did it. Arsenio did it. A lot of guys did it. So I I did it, and I get uh, the Arvizos. I get Gavin Star Davlin, and the mother Janet, and they lived up here. Like in Duarte, they took the bus over there, and I became their comedy coach. And I, you know, didn't know them. They were poor. I, I would take them to Greenblatt's next door, um, and I'd give them money for bus fare. I would buy them sandwiches. They'd take the bus back. And I was with them for about, you know, about a month or so, two months. And then they did the show, and Gavin did the show. Gavin was pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I get a call from the mother, hysterical that Gavin is sick. And that they found a tumorous cancer, uh, cancer uh, tumor in his stomach, a pretty big uh, tumor. He's at the hospital here on Sunset, the Children's Hospital. So I go over there, and I probably should say allegedly because it's going to get a little bit right. tricky right now, dicey. So, so, so I tried to, I tried to, I went over there, and uh, and and because uh, I'm going to show you something at the end. I went over there and um, uh, and was a friend. And then he needed blood, so we, we tried to do a blood drive uh, for him. We did a show at the at the uh, at the Laugh Factory to try to raise money, and uh, I got him on Fox News to do do a story about him. Fox. So Michael Jackson is is allegedly allegedly watching Fox News and calls the calls Fox to get the number of the kid uh, in in the hospital, and he calls the hospital and starts talking to Gavin on. I don't know, man. This is, it's tricky. Allegedly. So when I go over there, uh, Gavin is uh, like asleep during the day. And I said, so what's going on with Gavin? Like, why is he asleep? Oh, Michael called him. Michael Jackson called him. And I said, he did. About what? Oh, you know, he called him. They talked for like five hours, you know, and I said, five hours. So the, he would call him in the middle of the night and allegedly they would talk. And, uh, you know, he was at the point where, um, he wasn't eating, but he was getting better, but he wasn't eating. But Michael w- was calling a lot. And, uh, you know, they said to me, George, you know, tell him to eat. So I said to him, I said, Gavin, uh, you know, um, if you eat, you get out of, out of the hospital and I'll take you, you know, I'll take you shopping. I'll take you to, to the store. We'll go have lunch. So he gets out and I go pick him up and he lives in Duarte. So I pick him up and I bring him to my house in uh, Sherman Oaks. And uh, I take him to the Sherman Oaks Mall and, you know, I buy him. I don't know what I buy him. I took him and my daughter and then I bought him something. But when I take him home and I come back, my wife says, uh, Gavin left his wallet on top of the mantle, which is odd. That Why would a kid put his wallet on the mantle? You know, whether he placed it there on purpose, whether however it got there. His wallet was there. And it was one of those wallets that, like, the surfers had that had the, the Velcro. Velcro. It closed. Yeah, the, sure. So I open it up. And uh, um, I think at that point already, Gavin was going to the Neverland Ranch, uh, allegedly, on the weekends. And Michael Jackson had 
um, was giving um, the father a truck to drive, allegedly, and the mother a credit card, allegedly, to go shop. And, and the kids were spending the weekend at uh, Neverland Ranch. So, um, hey, uh, you know, alleged, of course. So um, I opened the wallet, and there's a $50 bill in the wallet. And I think, how is this kid have a $50 bill in his wallet? And I show Ann, I said, Ann, this kid's got, a, I took this kid to lunch, he's got $50. <laughs> so, so when I, when I gave the wallet back to the Laugh Factory, gave it to Jamie, uh, Jamie called the father, the father came and picked up the wallet and the father said that there was $300 in the wallet and that I took the $300 from the wallet. Um, that I took it. So <laughs> when Tom Mesero, so when Tom Mesero was doing his uh, vetting, allegedly, Jamie Masada says, well, you know, uh, George Lopez took Gavin to lunch and they left his wallet. And then when um, he brought the wallet back, alleged uh, David Arvizo said that, that George Lopez stole $300 from the wallet. <laughs> So Mesero thinks, okay, now I got somebody that looks like they're, you know, going after celebrities for financial gain. He used it in his opening argument. Uh, so I was in New York doing Regis, uh, um, Regis and Kelly, and I wake up in the morning and, you know, it's the biggest story. So I have the, I have court TV on Jesus. and uh, I, I walk by, I'm, I walk by, I get out of the shower and I walk by the TV and I, I look and I go, God, that guy looks like me. I look over and it is me. And it says, <laughs> George, it says George Lopez uh, 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 is going to get subpoenaed uh, uh, supposedly to testify in the Michael Jackson in trial. So I get a lawyer. Mesero calls me. He asks me if this thing is true. Mesero is yes. what? The def- he's what? Michael's defense He's lawyer? Michael Jackson. Tom, Tom Mesero is Michael Jackson's yeah. attorney. Right. So, so he says, this is true, you know. So, so what people don't know is uh, when I was on the radio in 2000, I said that I would do a fundraiser for uh, the family. So, but I canceled it because it became apparent to me that the father was more interested in the money than he was in having somebody, you know, uh, help his child, alleged. Right. So, so I did an appearance and the father shows up and confronts me outside the restaurant and says, hey, motherfucker, you know, what's going on with this show? And I said, motherfucker. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, what am I supposed to tell Gavin? You know, all of a sudden you cancel the show. Like, like, what am I supposed to tell my kid? I said, tell your kid that his fucking dad's trying to fucking extort money for people, you know, instead of trying to worry about the kid. And he said, is that right? And he got in my face. And I said, yeah, that's right. So um, all of a sudden, here I am in this trial. I get subpoenaed. I'm doing my show. Uh, I, I, I hire an attorney. I, I rent a plane. Jesus. I fly to Santa Maria. Uh. I get out and all that mayhem. Uh. I go into the courthouse. They're on a break. I get sworn. I, I'm standing around and I see the jury. I see Joseph Jackson. I see Catherine Jassy, the sisters alleged. Jeez. And then I'm looking for Michael Jackson. I don't see him. So I'm looking around and all of a sudden I see him and he was dressed in it. He looked like a nutcracker. Like he looked, he had a red jacket with the epaulets. He had the thing on. <laughs> nutcracker. 
and uh, and he had. I said he looked like the Captain Antonio at the same time. Like he just <laughs> was was so done, was so done up, and 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 um, I wasn't for anybody's side. Like everybody thought, you know, I was for the side that it was true that you know that guy said I took I took three hundred dollars, but while I was on on the stand. Michael Jackson was looking at me and I really didn't know Michael Jackson, but I mean, he looked, he looked, uh, you know, just very, very, um, I don't know, man. I'm going to say, I hate to say it because I'm such a huge fan. Ghoulish, you know, very sunken, almost grayish. And I just, you know, was trying to smile at me and, and, and it bothered me, Rob, you know, for like three weeks after that, I wake up in the middle of the night and I would just think about him and, you know, growing up and that kid and the music and all that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't on anybody's side. And uh, I remember uh, after I testified, um, uh, the elevator was closing and him and his family was in there and he was in the middle. And they said, George, come on, get in the elevator. I said, no, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. He's right in the middle. The elevator closes. But but um, when when uh, um, uh, the guy did the Living in Neverland, uh, Martin Bashir, I was watch. I was taping my show, and after we taped the show, I was watching the interview, and I had kind of forgotten about Gavin. And then, as I'm watching the interview, he's sitting there on the couch holding hands with Michael Jackson, and it really was the first time I had seen him in months. And Rob, I jumped. I, I may have almost like hit my head on the ceiling. I was so like, "What the?" I mean. Whoa, man, they're holding hands, they're leaning on each other. It's just like, oh my God. Crazy. So now I'm in this, now I'm in this thing. And uh, yeah, I testified uh, in the trial. And as a matter of fact, here is the artist rendering. No way. Look at that. Of me on with Thomas Mesereau. Oh, wait a minute, though. It looks like you're one of the Menendez brothers. I know. I know they drew me. I asked the guy to be kind. Do you think, I think this is just a reject from the Menendez brothers trial. But you, but you see. Uh, Look at that. There's Thomas Mazur and there's, oh, Michael. He is the captain and Tennille. Tennille and there's uh, Snedden, the guy that really wanted him, the guy sitting down, the prosecutor. Yeah. So that, that, guy that is, me, uh, by the way, that's the most unbelievable, like, what is it? What's the famous guy illustrator that everybody on Broadway gets done? You know, like the, oh, a Hirschfeld. A Hirschfeld. Yeah. That's like the world's greatest Hirschfeld you just showed me. So this guy is uh, Bill Robles. Bill, Ro- Bill Robles. And he, he is the Hirschfeld of, of uh, court renderings. That makes perfect sense. That's actually quite something. And he was a big fan of mine. And he said, I'll, I'll send it to you. And it was on the news that night. So, uh, um, yeah, man. And it cost me, here I tried to help this kid, you know, Jamie Masada, you know, says, hey, you know, I said he took $300. It cost me $75,000 to defend my, defend myself or present myself at yeah, court. Yeah, present yourself, exactly. Or something that I, that I didn't do other than just try to help somebody. That's such a crazy, crazy, <laughs> your life, brother. It's but a, that was it, wild, man. That you, was wild. That was, that, that was wild. Your, your, your life is to, th- we, we need to have stories when we play golf together. I need, I need to come to Lakeside and uh, yeah, come to Lakeside and play, man. I'd love to see you out there. 
So, um, you know, we're, 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 we're getting back to it and people need stuff to watch, man. You know, they need, sure. We need, people need escapism. It's one of the reasons I love doing this show is it just gives it just a minute for people to just chill and, you know, it's just, you know, nobody's haranguing anybody and we're, you know, talking thoughtful yeah. shit and funny stuff. Right. And that's the end of it. You know? Yeah. Or, well, you know, know, you're good at it, man. So, yeah. Oh. So, so for me, you know, at, at 59, you know, with opportunities to do other stuff, you know, and, you know, did a Netflix special that came out and, and, you know, there'll be no stand up this year. Mm. There won't be any shows. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that I'll go back and ever do stand up again. I may, I may be done with that part of my, wow. of my career. Wow. You know, I just think, I've, you know, I think, you know, the honor that it's given me, the things that it's given me, uh, the Netflix thing was great. This, this kind of downtime has given me for the first time. I wasn't out there grinding as much. And uh, in appreciation of something, you know, I think it might be time to put that kind of portion of my life away. Go out on top because it, it probably will never be what it was. <laughs> it won't be what it was. And, you know, I'm not sure if I want to travel as much. And, you know, at 59, you know, I had a kidney transplant in 2005. And you start to figure, you know, I'm, these days that I'm out there with my friends and like, I like those days. I'm not sure if I want to be in a hotel room waiting for it to get dark, you know, anymore. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, it sounds so great. <laughs> um, George, yeah. you're the best. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Absolutely, man. And, and I am going to reach out to you and get your, your info because um, will, will you take me to Derwiner Schnitzel? It's not there anymore, but I'll, I'll take your word. It's not? No. I, I'll take you to some great Mexican places, though. Casa, what is the one that's right by uh, Casa Vega? Dump- Luke was over there. Casa, Casa Vega. Vega, baby. Yeah. You know, I went in there with Slash one time, and the and the waiters are still there. And then, and, and uh, the waiter goes, "Senor Slash, remember when you used to come in here in the eighties, man? And it would be all dark, and you'd come with some." And Slash is like, "No, nah, bro. No, know. not the eighties. What do you remember? How Slash in the eighties going to remember? You know, having lunch in Casa Vega, and it was completely, completely dark. Like all those guys went in there. That's and, so uh, good." And drank all day and ate Mexican food. and. Yep. Oh, yeah. I remember it well. Um, <laughs> okay, so we'll do we'll do 18 holes in Casa Vega. I love it, man. Bye. All right, brother. Love you, man. Thank right, you. Dude. Absolutely, Thank you so man. Much. Thanks. Thank yeah, you. man. Wow, that was amazing for me. I mean, I've, I've known George peripherally for years and been a fan, but I had no idea the level of, like, self-work and, and, and growth and how smart he is. I mean, I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years in therapy. According to George, I could have listened to the baseball coach. Fuck. I mean, he, that was amazing. He is, he is tuned up, man. He is an evolved human being. And in, in, in addition to being a 10 handicap, um, he may be the world's most perfect human being. Um, And thank you for listening to Literally, and we'll see you again next week. And oh, by the way, don't forget to go. um, um, I'm reading all of the reviews and comments, by the way. It's for all of you people who've um, been kind enough to give me your thoughts and pointers, whether it's on Apple or Stitcher or all the websites, particularly Apple. That's the one that that gets the most traction. So if you've um, got an extra five minutes to spare, um, tell me what you think of, uh, of the show. And I appreciate you. See you next week. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe. Produced and engineered by me, Devin Tory Bryant. 
Executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile. Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Stitcher. The supervising producer is Aaron Blaird. Talent producer, Jennifer Samples. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.